So I grew up on a small ranch, and uh, my day-to-day chores consisted of me uh, feeding horses and picking up their um, remains. And we lived on a five-acre piece of property, and that property was uh, almost entirely on a hill. So uh, when I would actually go to clean the horse corrals, you'd be scooping uh, the horse manure, putting it in a wheelbarrow, and then pushing it up and down this very steep hill. Uh, It took about two hours, and under a hot sun, it really made out to be a miserable job. Uh, I had two older brothers, and um, we all hated it. We all despised this task. And our our usual day went is in the morning, my mom would be gone, and then she would come back sometime around noon or early afternoon, and she drove this really, really big van, and when it drove up the hill, we could all hear it from inside the house. We could hear this deep roar of it approaching the house, and we knew we had about 60 seconds to run, (laughs) right? Because what would end up happening, at at least as a kid, how I remember it, but what would end up happening is my mom would walk in the door, she would look from room to room, And the first kid she saw, target acquired, guess what you're doing for the next two hours? (laughs) The thing is, we all had this vision of what we wanted to do with our day. We all had this thought of like, I would love to be spending my day in the pool. I'd love to be playing games, watching a movie, hanging out with friends, whatever it is. We had a plan for ourselves. We had an idea. And my mom had a different one. Now, uh, I'm making this out to sound a lot worse than it actually was. My mom was very fair, and she was very good to us. But the thing is, as a kid, you really know what you want. You really know what you want to do, and you really know what you don't want to do. And I was willing, as a kid, to run from the things I didn't want to do. Right? When we heard the van driving up the hill, we knew we had two things to do in 60 seconds. The first thing is sabotage your brother any way you can throwing their shoes away, pushing them over, whatever it means. And then the second thing is running as fast as you possibly can because you didn't want to get caught up doing that. As a kid, though, uh, I ran from the things I didn't want to do. Today we're going to be talking about another story of someone who ran from something that they didn't want to do. We're going to be talking about Jonah and how he ran from the mission that God was giving him. Now I get the great privilege of starting us off on this series uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks, Cliff's going to be taking us through the series of Jonah. And so I'm, I'm lucky enough to be the first one to, to launch us into this. Join me in prayer uh, before we dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this opportunity to get together as a community. And as a community, fellowship and worship you. Worship you with our mouths in song, and worship you in our hearts and in our minds. God, I ask that you come before us today, that you enter this room, that you challenge us in a new way that we haven't been challenged before. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be holy and pleasing to you. Amen. Turn with me to uh, Jonah chapter 1. Uh, Today we're going to read just the first three verses. So Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. 
Now, in chapter 1 here, uh, we, we don't really know what uh, God is telling Jonah to preach. He just says, preach. Uh, but actually, in chapter 3, that's revealed a little bit. Uh, God, once again, says, go and tell Nineveh the message I've given you. And then in Nineveh, uh, Jonah says uh, that the city of Nineveh will be overturned in 40 days. So basically, uh, Jonah is preaching for Nineveh to repent, to change, to change the way they think and the way that they act, so that God would show mercy on them. Let's keep reading. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship uh, bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, this passage has always cracked me up because it never really says, why is Jonah running? All we see is that God asked Jonah to do something, and Jonah then runs. And he doesn't run, he doesn't just run, he runs far. Take a look at this map. I know you can't see, there's, uh, there's words up there, but uh, the, the beginning of Jonah takes place in the heart of Israel. Uh, and then Nineveh is up on the very far right of the map, right in the center and the very far right of the map. Uh, Tarshish is on the extremely far left. And for the most part, this is like the known world for Jonah. Right? This is like the, the world that he knows of. So when he runs to Tarshish, he's not just running. He's running almost as far as he can get. And in some ways, it's very humorous, though. I, I really appreciate that the text doesn't tell us why he ran. ran. God says, go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah's like, well, I'm out. And then he heads far away. But because the text doesn't tell us, we have to put our scholarly hats on and really investigate. Well, why would Jonah run? What is it about Nineveh in particular that made Jonah run? The first thing to recognize is Nineveh was a huge city. Some scholars say uh, that at parts, the walls were as high as 100 feet tall and as wide as 20 feet wide. Right? And this is, these are actually pictures of uh, Nineveh today. At least the right and the bottom one are pictures of Nineveh today. Uh, the walls are so big that many of them are still intact uh, to this day. Uh, they've done minor repairs to try to fill in some of the gaps. But you can see there are huge walls. On top of that, it had a huge population. Uh, in chapter 4, it alludes to the size uh, but also, archaeologists have, have confirmed that uh, if you take, like, the square footage of Nineveh and you estimate how many people could live in there, it's something around 125,000 people. And that's just within the city. Uh, oftentimes, there was three or four times that outside the city. So we're looking at something near 600,000 people living in or around Nineveh. But the second thing to consider, and which is, this is the far more important thing, Right, during the time of Jonah, right, 8th century BC, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was uh, kind of a big deal back in the day. Right, they were the big kid on the block. Right, or at least they were becoming the big kid on the block. Right, they had a massive military power. They had a huge army. They had fantastic tactics and outstanding military technology. Right, often scholars look at uh, uh, the Assyrian Empire and think that it was kind of like the first superpower in that area. It was a fantastic military power. But on top of that, they know how to use that power. They were violent. 
They were known for conquering other nations, for massacring other nations, for destroying other nations. Uh, Israel uh, specifically has some history with that. In 722 BC, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and then uh, the citizens are deported. Right? The, the, the philosophy that the Assyrians had was you didn't really want to have a bunch of conquered people living in the same area, because right? it, it makes a revolt a lot easier. Right? But we're not exactly sure uh, when the story of Jonah happened, uh, but we know it's somewhere around that period. Right? It might have been 50 years before uh, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom, or it might have been 50 years after, but we know it was sometime around that. So the average Israelite would have really despised the Assyrian Empire. They would, have, they would have seen them as an enemy. They would have seen them as a group of people who were either about to conquer them or who had just conquered them. And Nineveh was the flagship of that empire of Assyria. Nineveh was the flagship. It, it represented all the power. Right? Those huge walls represented the power of the Assyrian Empire. It should be no wonder why Jonah ran. Jonah was an Israelite. Jonah, like the other Israels, probably looked and despised Assyria. They saw the wickedness of them. They saw how violent they were. They knew that that violentness was everything against the Lord was about. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh punished. He would have wanted to see them destroyed. He would have wanted to see God's wrath poured out on them. He would have wanted to see the city brought to its knee. Jonah wanted to see God's wrath. And if God was going to save Nineveh, if he was going to show mercy, right, that's his business. Jonah was probably thinking, well, great, you can spare them, that's fine. But don't include me in this process. Don't make me a part of this process of saving Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to see Nineveh be saved. He wanted to see God's wrath. Jonah had his own desire for Nineveh. He had his own plan for what should happen to Nineveh. He had his own want for what should happen to Nineveh. God had a different one. God didn't want to destroy Nineveh for the sake of destroying Nineveh. God wanted to see Nineveh change, and he wanted to show mercy. At the end of the book, uh, well, Jonah knew this. Right? Jonah knew that uh, God wanted to show mercy. Right? And that's part of the reason why he is uh, not wanting to go to Nineveh. Uh, at the end of the book, he shows some bitterness because, um, well, God eventually does spare Nineveh, and, and Jonah is bitter about that. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, this is right after Nineveh uh, is saved, it says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God, uh, Jonah knew God would show mercy, but Jonah didn't want to see mercy. He thought, well, if I don't go to Nineveh, then I can't preach for them to repent. If I don't preach for them to repent, then they won't repent, and God won't show mercy. God would then destroy Nineveh. I win. 
Right? He had this hope. He had this, this, this little thought. He thought, I have this plan for Nineveh, and he's trying to figure out how can I manipulate the situation to make God fit into my plan? How can I twist something so that God still destroys Nineveh rather than sparing them? Jonah had his own idea for how God should act. He ran because he hoped that God would do what Jonah wanted God to do. Most of us have our own vision, our own plan, our own idea of what we want out of life. Right? It could be any kind of plan. Right? But each of us have something different. It could be some kind of a job. It could be some kind of a status. It could be some kind of a relationship. Right? It might be some goal that we have for ourselves, some, something we want for our kids or our family or our neighbors. But we have an idea of what we think a good life is. We have an idea of what we want out of life. We have this idea of, if I have this, then I will be happy. Right, maybe you have this plan that I would love to have my house paid off by the time I'm 60. Maybe you have this idea that you want to have a pool in your backyard. Or you want to have some kind of car, whatever it is. Right? We all have some vision for ourselves, some plan for ourselves, some hope for ourselves. Some idea of what makes a good life. The mistake we often make, though, is we try to make God, Jesus, the church, Christianity, we somehow try to make all that conform to our plan, fit into our plan, our idea. But the way it normally works is that God asks us something, or asks us to do something. Jesus commands us. Christianity, as Christians, we are obligated to do something, but that directly conflicts with our vision for ourselves our plan for ourself. And we're often not willing to sacrifice our own plans to, to see God's will. For those of you guys who uh, have a Costco membership or you know somebody with a Costco membership or, or whatever, you, you know of this Costco I-must-have-it syndrome. You, know, you walk into Costco, you see something you like, and then all of a sudden you go from, hey, this is cool, to I need this, I want this so badly. Right, Nicole and I always have to be uh, careful when we step into Costco. We're not very needy people. We're not very, very materialistic. But when we step into Costco, it's a whole new Philip and Nicole. Right, we'll be walking in and we'll just see something. Something catches our, idea, uh, our eye. Right, we pay attention and we go, ooh, I like this. Right, a five-pack barbecue utensil kit. Right, I need this. And then right next to it, oh, the cowboy apron with the spatula holster. Right? I, I see it, I like it, and now I want it. I, there's something about Costco that happens. You see something, and then you go from liking it to like feeling like you need it. And I don't know what it is about Costco, but it does it to people, doesn't it? I worked there for a few months, um, a very short time, actually. And I, I only did two jobs. I was a uh, I pushed carts, which was uh, the second most miserable job, uh, second to cleaning up horse crowds. And then uh, I also was a bagger, which I guess at Costco is more of a boxer. Um, but I, I saw this all the time. It was like every other customer, right? They would come up to the cashier with this, like, guilty look, like this shameful, guilty look. And they look at the cashier and they say, I just came in for milk. And then they look down, and there's piles of stuff. 
You go in to spend $2 and you come out spending $200, right? I think what we do is we walk in there, right? We walk into these stores and we see things that we like, and then we start to envision ourselves with it. And then it's really hard at that point to set it down and say, you know what, I don't need this. I can walk away from it. Right, there's this tension between that, that Costco, I must have it syndrome, and our rationality. Because then we really start to ask, do I really need that cowboy apron? Right, do I really need this five-pack utensil kit? I already have a spatula, why do I need five? Right, you start to, you, there's this rationality, or there should be this rationality or tension there. Right, my rationality is always Nicole. Right, the other day we walked in there and we saw this, well I saw this, enormous, it was like the size of a human being, teddy bear. Now, I love random things. The randomer it is, the better. And I saw this, and I was like, oh, my goodness. I, I grabbed it. I touched it. I was wrestling with it. I was thinking of all the things I could do with this teddy bear. And then I showed it to Nicole, and she just looked at me like I was stupid. <laughs> and she's like, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to spend? Why are you going to spend 30 bucks on this teddy bear? And I was pretty bummed. We didn't get it. And that's why I'm not allowed to shop at Costco alone. <laughs> but oftentimes when you go shopping, right, there, there should be this conflict between this, this rationality of whether I really need it or not. And this desire to just get what I want. To see it and it's mine, I get it. And I think there's that same kind of conflict we see in our faith oftentimes. Right? We have our desire, our, our feeling that this is what I want out of life. And oftentimes that conflicts directly with what Jesus wants out of our life. There are a great deal of commands that Jesus gives us that really conflict with our wants. There's a story in the New Testament that demonstrates this really well, this conflict uh, between Jesus and a a rich young man. Um, It's in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 20. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? The question alone says a lot, doesn't it? I mean, he's not coming up to Jesus saying, How must I be changed? How can you transform me? Right? How can I become a true disciple, a true disciple, a true follower of your footsteps? No, he comes up and he says, what thing must I do? What little thing must I do to get eternal life? I want to add eternal life to my checklist of things I have. And the part of my vision for myself. What little thing must I do? Right, the rich young man thinks he has this conversation figured out. Uh, but Jesus has a surprise. Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied. Jesus is getting philosophical on this guy. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which, which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Right? And his response is kind of arrogant. He's like, ah, yeah, I just got to do these little commands, right? Well, I've done that. I can do those things, taken care of. I can check heaven off, right? 
Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he walked away sad because he had great wealth. This was a young, wealthy guy. Wealth was a part of who he saw himself. It's a part of his identity. I guarantee you that if you asked him, what do you see, what do you, where do you want to be in 10 years? I'm sure his wealth was included in that. Wealth was something he held on to. He, he treasured dearly. He treasured. Jesus knew this. Jesus told him to sell his possessions, probably, because he knew that the young man valued his possessions so much. He wasn't just asking him to give to the poor. Jesus' hope wasn't just to take care of the poor at this moment. Jesus wanted to change this young man's value. He wanted to change how he saw himself and the vision and the plan that he had for himself. Right, oftentimes, I think we think that this is about Jesus trying to save the poor. And I think there's, that he's partially trying to achieve that. But I don't think this is Jesus' way of saving the poor through the rich young man. I actually think Jesus is trying to save the rich young man through the poor. <clears throat> the rich young man uh, came to Jesus trying to figure out how to make religion fit into his paradigm for life. Right? He had his hope, he had his thought, and he wanted to keep wealth a part of that. He came to Jesus uh, because he's trying to figure out some little secret. But he walks away sad because he realized just how costly discipleship truly is. What it really means to give ourselves up to God. God's plan was to make him realize what it means to follow Jesus. I've sat through many studies uh, where we cover this passage, and I'm always so surprised and so impressed, really, on how fast people are to say why this is not a universal command. Why, why this particular uh, command Jesus gives was really just for the uh, rich young man. Right? He would never ask me to do that, right? And recently I asked myself, is this really true? Would, would Jesus really never ask me to give up everything I had and sell it? Just for a moment, don't think about those kinds of responses. Don't think about uh, why this isn't a command for you. Don't think about those things. Right? Just for a moment, ask yourself, if Jesus asked you to sell everything you had and give it away, would you do it? Would you be willing to just dump everything that you've worked for for the last so many years? And would you do it joyfully? Or would you be like the rich young man? Would you walk away sad? The rich young man walked away sad because he realized that his plan had to be let go. He realized that what it really means to follow Jesus requires a great amount of sacrifice. I shared this thought uh, with the youth a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I have this routine I usually take in the morning, or I usually do throughout the week, that in the mornings I go to the gym, and at the gym I'm, I'm listening to uh, some kind of an audiobook. And uh, a few weeks ago I was listening to Francis Chan's uh, The Forgotten God, a, a book about the Holy Spirit. It's a great book if you haven't read it. 
But one of the things that Chan does in this book is that he, uh, he talks about some individuals that he knows. At the end of every chapter, he talks about some individual that he knows or a couple he knows that really lives a spirit-filled life. And one of these stories that he shared really hit me hard. It was about this uh, young couple who didn't have any kids. They didn't want any kids. They liked this financial freedom. They liked the, the not having responsibility of dealing with children. They liked the idea that at spur of the moment, they could just uh, leave the house for the weekend and you know, not have to worry about the extra hundred things you have to do when you have kids. Right? They liked not having kids. But at some part in their life, uh, God really placed it on their hearts to take care of the orphans. They read this command from Jesus to say, take care of these orphans. Take care of them as if they were your own children. And then they looked across the world. They saw, they saw the kids dying of starvation, dying without having clean water. The kids being sold into sex trafficking, where they're raped over and over again. And they said, if those were my kids, man, I wouldn't just send 30 bucks and hope for the best of them. Over the course of their marriage, they ended up adopting 11 children. And they didn't even want kids. Right? But it hit me so hard, it made me realize how much I hold on to. Right? It made me realize just how much I'm really not willing to give up those things that Jesus those, that planned for me. Right? I have this hope, and I'm not willing to give that up to, 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 for Jesus' commands. I actually, in the gym, it struck me so hard. I really felt like it was a needle piercing through my heart. I actually got a little teary-eyed. I got a little emotional. And I remember looking around. And if anyone's been to the 24-hour fitness in Marina Valley, you know that there are a lot of steroids going around there. Huge guys. And here I am, and I'm like, (laughs) crying my eyes out. I ended up going home, and I I sat down with Nicole, and I I told her, you know, about what I just heard. I wish I had a camera to record a response because I asked her, uh, Nicole, if, if Jesus laid it on our hearts to adopt 11 kids, would we do it? She was like, whoa. <laughs> I, I don't know. And I don't know either. I really don't know if, if I would be able to do that. But God asked Jonah to go minister to his enemies. He asked Jonah to go show these people mercy that did not, a people group that did not show mercy. He asked him to go love a bunch of people that he's hated for so long. Right? And Jonah had his plan for what he wanted for Nineveh. He had his plan, but God had a different one. My theory is, is that God wasn't just interested in saving Nineveh. I think God was very much interested in saving Jonah. I think he recognized that kind of hatred Jonah was holding on to, that kind of anger, that kind of bitterness. And he realized that he needed to save Jonah. He realized that Jonah needed to let this go. Just like the rich young man, the rich young man held on to his wealth so dearly. And Jesus knew this. And I think Jesus asked him to let it go just because he knew this so well. I think God often calls us to do things we don't want to do. I think God asks us to give ourselves up in ways we aren't wanting to give ourselves up. 
God saw the change that Jonah needed. God saw the change the rich young man needed. For some of us, we might have a very, very clear idea of the things that we need to change. We might have a very clear idea of of the vision we have for our life, and we recognize that really can't live within Christianity. For some of us, we might know of some things that we're doing we know we should stop doing. Some relationships that we need to fix but we don't want to fix. Some conversations we, we should have but we don't want to have. Maybe some of us know people who really need Christ, but we're not quite sure if we want to talk about that. Some of us, we really do know uh, our vision and how it conflicts with God. Are you like Jonah? Do you know that God is pulling on your heart in some way and you're not sure if you want to give that up? Is there something in your life that God is trying to bring to your attention but you're just not sure if you're really willing to give it up? Or maybe your story is that you aren't sure. You don't know how you need to change. You're not sure about the things you're holding on to. Maybe you're like the rich young man where you think Christianity is really simple. Where you think it's just about uh, going to church on Sunday, following a few commands, and making sure you pray before every dinner. Right? Maybe you're not sure of just how much change needs to take place. Maybe you don't know the kinds of change that needs to take place. And if that is the case then I would advise that you make an extremely healthy habit of praying to God and asking him to reveal to you what needs to change. But the important thing for us to remember is that Christianity isn't just about doing some simple tasks. It's not just about taking care of the poor. It's not just about going to church. It's not about giving our money away. Christianity is about being changed by our creator, our redeemer, and our Lord. Recently, I took the youth group through the story of Jonah. And one thing popped out at me that I never really noticed before. I, I know we often, when we approach Jonah, we have this, this view to really highlight how God is interested in saving Nineveh. Right? And it's an important thing to It's an important comment. It's an important thought. Because Uh, it really helps us figure out that God wasn't just interested in saving Israel, but he had a greater plan for the rest of the world. But I think if that's all we focus on, we actually lose uh, the heart, in my opinion, the heart of what this book is about. It starts off with this conflict between Jonah's plan and God's plan. And the book ends with God getting his way and Jonah being grouchy about it. It ends with Jonah being unhappy about it. The book begins and it ends about God and Jonah's relationship. Right? I think the story, as I've, as I've alluded to in the whole sermon, I think a lot of what the story is going after is God saving Jonah. Right? He saves Nineveh through all this, but he's really after changing Jonah's heart. God calls us to ministry, to not only serve those in need, to not only take care of the poor, the sick, the hungry, the orphans, the widows, but also that we might make a sacrifice, that we might be changed in that sacrifice. God calls us to serve to not only help those in need,
but also for us to be changed in our service. Are you willing to do things that you know you don't want to do? Are you willing to give up things that you know you don't want to? Are you really willing to set aside your plan so that God's plan can come through? Are you willing to do all of that so that God can change you in that sacrifice? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be challenged. This opportunity to think about you. And God, I ask that you help us grow throughout this week. That this, this doesn't end here. But God, that you continue to tug on our hearts. That you continue to challenge us. That you continue to reveal to us the ways we need to be changed. Thank you, God, for your constant love for us. And help us to discern that more clearly in our busy lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.